Talking with Tech is sponsored by Q Interactive, Pearson's iPad-based system for testing, scoring, and reporting. Experience unheard of efficiency and client engagement with 20 top tests, all delivered digitally. You can sign up for a free 30-day trial at pearsonclinical.com TWT18. Um, after that 30 days, if you want to go ahead and use it, call 1-800-627-7271 and give them promo code TWT18 to get 10% off the Q Interactive license. Uh, this is only good through the end of the year, December 31st, 2018, so try it now. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel, what's up? There's something going on. What's uh, Your face does not look like a typical Rachel Madel. What's, what's, I what's know. Going? You know what, Chris? I had a really terrible conversation. It was actually a few days ago now. Um, it's still sticking with me. So I'm working with a client and oftentimes the clients that I work with, they have multiple speech therapists on the team, um, as is the case with kids with complex communication needs. You know, one speech therapist is working on verbal stuff. I'm doing some AAC stuff and I've been meaning to connect with this clinician for a while because we've shared similar cases and I've always heard about her and I got on the call with her and the first thing that came out of her mouth was fill in the blank. So-and-so's the client can't do anything. And I was like, Whoa, I was so taken aback. Um, you know, I, I was just like, ready to kind of talk about the strategies that we were using. And, you know, and then she just proceeded to say that, you know, she's not using the device purposefully. She barely uses it. I don't use it because she doesn't know how to use it. And it was, it was a, not a good conversation. And I, I think the reason that it's sticking with me is because I don't like the way that I responded. I was so taken aback that I didn't stick up for this little girl that I work with my client and she is doing amazing things when the conditions are right. And, you know, she's getting a lot of modeling and she's motivated. And I felt like I just, I don't know. I had a, I have a really hard time when people are kind of aggressive towards me or assertive in that kind of way. And I, I'm very, you know, I'm a people pleaser and I'll be the first to admit it. Um, I don't like making enemies. And so I, I went into this conversation wanting to have a good rapport with this woman. And I just was like, it just put such a bad taste in my mouth. And then I didn't, I didn't stand up for this little girl. I mean, I did in some ways, but I just wish I would have taken a stronger stance. Interesting. Interesting. I, I feel like that. I bet you a lot of people have had those conversations over the year. I know I have. I feel like I have those more frequently than not. You know, um, sometimes with a speech therapist, I hear those words quite frequently. She, this person can't do anything. They're not motivated. Rachel, do you know who George R.R. Martin is? No. You know who that is? So that's the author of the Game of Thrones series, right? And he gets a lot of flack because he started the Game of Thrones series. He wrote a bunch of books. They got super popular. He got rich. And he's like, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to finish that series. You know, I might not actually finish it. It's because, you know, I'm happy and I like to enjoy my life. And I don't know how many years I have left. And his fans got upset about this, right? They were like, well, come on, What? We've, you've, we've invested all this time in this story and with you and you need to finish it. You need to write another book. And do you know who Neil Gaiman is, right? Neil Gaiman is another famous author out there. And he came back in this to defend uh, George R. R. Martin. He said, listen, George R. R. Martin is not obligated to do anything for you, right? And I, I think of that story, he actually put it in a much more uh, derogatory way. So if you want to look that up, I'm just gonna, not going to say it in this podcast uh, the way Neil Gaiman said it. But my, my point is, the student is not obligated to do anything, right? They come to the class and they sit there, they come to your therapy session and they sit there and it's up to you to get them to do something. They are just there, not necessarily, in most cases, not by choice, right? They're there because their mom put them there, their dad put them there, or because they're in school and that's just what you do when you're school age is you go to school, but it's not their choice necessarily to be there. They'd rather be at home in a beanbag chair or, or be someplace else that's uh, watching a, a video someplace. So it's on us. It's on us. And so, so whenever I hear someone say that, I think of that story about George R. R. Martin and Neil Gaiman and think, okay, you can have your moment to vent and say the student's not doing anything, but it's on you to make it happen. Absolutely. And it just, it, I, I left that conversation thinking, well, how did that serve us? You know, like how did that conversation serve us? You know, it didn't inspire us to do better. It didn't help us collaborate to help. You know, if we start from a place of nothing's possible, 
then of course nothing is possible. You know, exactly. and you'll be right. You'll be right every single time. And so I just, it's so hard. How do you bond when somebody is just so negative and so disbelieving? And I just, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I had a really hard time. I, I, I said to her, listen, you know, when, when the situation is right, meaning she's motivated, she's doing amazing things. She's come such a far way. And while, you know, it doesn't do us any good to compare apples to oranges. And I feel like a lot of times that's what happens when you try to compare one kid to another kid. Um, you know, we know kids are all different. And so if you're comparing, you know, this kid over here to a different kid, yeah, of course they're not making progress in the same way because they're different kids and they have totally different needs. And so I feel like in that situation, she was comparing this little girl to a different client that maybe was making faster progress or another client that was using a device, um, you know, in a way that she felt was more consistent, but it was really offensive. And, you know, just thinking about the professional context, I would never go in to a speech therapy session where someone was doing prompt, for example, or some type of verbal approach and say like, well, she's not saying any words, you know, she's not saying any approximations. I can never understand her speech. I would never say that <laughs> because yeah, it kind of right. discredits the work that the other person's doing. Um, so for her to say like the device is useless, well, okay, that's what I spend all of my time with this child doing. So <laughs> basically you're saying my therapy's not working or my therapy's useless. Um, so I was just offended on so many levels. Um, I have to be honest, I've been really harsh on myself because I've been analyzing and thinking through my reaction. And so I wanted to, to bring it up on the podcast because I felt like maybe other clinicians have had similar situations and it's always a balancing act. You, you need to establish and maintain a good rapport with people. And I'm a big believer in that. You don't get anywhere by making enemies when you're in a team collaborative session or collaborative setting. But you also have to kind of stand your ground and say what you believe. And I wish that I had done that a little bit more in this situation. Rachel, let me ask, how did the conversation wind up? I mean, what was your, your takeaway or your, um, your resolution in the conversation? I mean, I was very taken aback, obviously. And so my defenses went up and I was like, okay, like don't react. Cause my first, my gut reaction was to be like defending it. Like, no, she's absolutely doing these things. And I was like, okay, calm down. Like, and then I was like, this is a teaching opportunity to teach this woman who was light years, has light years more experience than me. She's a, a, an older clinician. Um, but to teach her that just because we don't see it during our sessions doesn't mean it's not happening. And these abstract language concepts, because a lot of it was focused on the core words that she was not using consistently. Um, and so I said, she can find any noun in that device. She finds it. And she, when she's motivated, like she can find every book that she wants. She can find every food. Um, so it's really the core words that she's a little more inconsistent with. And it just takes lots of modeling. And so I just encouraged her to bring the device out during her sessions and to just show her. I was like, we need to show her over and over and over again how to use these words. Words, so she attributes meaning to them and she can understand them and then eventually use them. It's like, I've worked with so many kids with similar profiles and it just takes time. You know, we just started this device six months ago. So of course it's, there's a learning curve involved um, and we need everybody on board. So that's kind of how I, I approached it. And I mean, she, she listened, but I don't know that I made an impact, um, but I still, I did my due diligence. Yeah, she's she still remains thoroughly unconvinced that yes. it could that it could happen. A couple of questions: Is this a school age child? So is there a, is there a teacher involved? Um, yes, this is a school age child. There is a teacher, and that's the thing. Everybody else on the team is seeing progress. So it's situations like that where I'm like, okay, this isn't like you know only during my sessions we are seeing progress across the board, but. I think that a lot of times, especially in my experience with clinicians who maybe do one kind of therapy, um, sometimes they're not open to other kinds of therapy to help you know, support a total communication approach. Um, and especially if certain clinicians don't feel comfortable with technology, I think that they automatically think, you know, put it in front of a child and it should magically work, which we know that's, a, that's not how it works. Um, so it's just, I think there's a lot of things that were at play in this specific situation. Do you think some of the, the, the proof might be in the pudding? Meaning if you took a little video and the, and the parents were okay with you sharing it, that, that maybe this other speech therapist could see it then, you know, cause she probably just can't see it, you know, like she doesn't have a vision of how it could work for this student. But if they, if you, if it was working in your therapy session and there was some evidence, then it's a little bit harder to refute. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think that's an amazing idea and something that I actually
actually did think about because I was like the defense of me was thinking, yes, I will show her. I will take a video next session and I will send it to her and say, oh, yeah, she's not using it consistently. <laughs> you know, so. So, yes, I, 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 of course, won't use that tone. Um, I'll be quite friendly when I send that video. But um, I definitely think that that's a perfect way to show not only what the child's capable of, but, you know, how as a communication partner to support her, which I think that there's probably a lot of training that could be involved as well. So do you think she would buy into the idea that the student is using the nouns at least like has she seen the student use the nouns on the device at all no and and the problem is too you know i think a lot of times kids aren't necessarily picking their device up and opening you know the folders and they're not necessarily initiating in the beginning stages of aac um you know and so i think that's part of the problem is that she just assumes that she's gonna go pick the device up and tell her on the device and i'm like well, we need to help, right? We need to to remind and we need to be, have it open modeling um, so she can, you know, have that reminder. Oh yeah, I can say it this way. I think kids are very sensitive to the kind of structure that they are used to in a certain session. So she's probably used to going to the session, um, you know, not having a device and, you know, working on, you know, verbal approximations and things like that. So it's probably both from the client's perspective, hard to remember, oh, like, you know, I can use my device in this situation, especially if the communication partner is not supporting the device in that situation. Exactly. They're really showing it or, or saying it, you know, my analogy. So I often think of it like driving a car, right? Like, I've been in cars for hours and hours and hours and hours. And it didn't mean that when I would suddenly turn 15, I could drive a car. Do you know what I mean? Someone still had to get there and teach me how to drive a car. There wasn't any expectation that this big complex music machinery that I would just know how to do it because I happened to be sitting in one most of my life. And that, as I feel like, is, again, an analogy to the communication device. I don't know where this myth comes from that, that you could just throw it in front of a student and you'd assume that they know how to do it. That's like assuming because you've been riding in a car that you should know how to drive a car, you know, but no, no one has that assumption. Yeah. Well, I think too, we've all seen those magical stories on like Dateline where it's like, we gave them a device and like they were unlocked, (laughs) you know? And so I think that's part of it too, is that we, we see stories like that. And I think parents, they get so excited. They're like, well, that has to be my child. Like, I know my child's so smart and I know that that's what they're capable of, but that's a very rare situation. Kids need to learn not only where all of the words are, but the language behind it and how to use that language. And if they haven't, they've spent their whole life not doing that. It takes practice and learning. So yeah. And the why, why would I need to do it again? I have no obligation to you or anyone else to do anything. So I can just sit here and you're still going to feed me and you're still going to change me or you're still going to take care of me in any way that I need to be taken care of. So I have no obligation to communicate, but until, wait a second, you're playing with a dinosaur and that's kind of cool. And I kind of want that dinosaur and oh my gosh, now it's on your head. That's funny. I've never seen a dinosaur on your head. Uh, wait, can I say that or want that or, or I do, you know? And uh, now suddenly there's a reason to communicate because that dinosaur is so fun, you know, or whatever the, 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 the thing might be, but it's on us to bring the dinosaur in there, right? I couldn't agree more. I always um, say the phrase inspire, don't require, because I really think as clinicians, it's our job to inspire children to communicate. We have to find something that's so motivating and so exciting that they can't possibly not have their eyes locked on it and figure out a way to get it and to communicate for it. Um, And so I I say that all the time to the clinicians that I work with and online, all my videos and things like that. That needs to be a t-shirt. If you don't have a t-shirt yet, that put that right in your store, you know? (laughs) Good idea. I know. Inspire don't require. And also it just reminds us that just because we're modeling doesn't mean we have to expect a response. And oftentimes I think about if we had to talk all day long, think about if we had somebody hovering over us, making us talk all the time, we would be exhausted. Uh, I just had a conversation earlier today and the client that I was on a call about, she, I think from ABA kind of putting too many communication demands, she kind of started shutting down and it was like, she went through this period where she wasn't using communication and she just was like not having it. And we eased up on the demands. I said, okay, like let's model without expectation, like keep the language models. Cause that's really important. Uh, immersion of language, but let's just, let's not require responses all the time. Like, I think that this is an issue of like, she's just overwhelmed. And sure enough, within, you know, a few weeks of just easing back that demand, she was spontaneously initiating all the time. 
Exactly. Oh my gosh. I just had that conversation literally before I came to this to record. I was at a school and the speech therapist was like, okay, so this kid, he just likes to go and sit in the corner in his beanbag chair and he's get usually wears a hoodie. And so he pulls the strings in the hoodie and he just kind of keeps his head down and he just wants to sit there. It's like, okay, here's what you do. Uh, tell me if you think this would work. Just go sit next to him with the device and just say, I sit, I'm tired or I am tired or just tired. And say that on the device and then put your head on his shoulder. I sleep and put your head down. I sleep, put your head down. I sleep, put your head down. And then just give him wait time and see how, how he might do. Uh, and then each time when you pop your head back up, you say up, up, up with no expectation that he does anything. So we're going to see how that goes because uh, she's going to try it. She's like, I, I never, I never tried that. I'm always trying to like grab his hand or, or, or make him do something. Just take all that expectation away. Take all that stress away. And you just think how uh, awkward it would be is if I just came in and told you what to do all the time, you know, do this, do that, do that. You, you would hate it. Exactly. And we're always trying to control, right? And the thing is, a lot of these kiddos that we work with, they don't have a lot of control of their bodies and, and their situations that they're in. And so it's it's really important to remember, you know, it's a balance, right? We have to kind of encourage kids to learn and um, we can't just let them sit in the corner all day. But I mean, just giving kids a break because these kids have multiple therapies and all day long, you know, they sit in school all day where they're kind of being bombarded with things to do. And then a lot of them go home and, you know, are in all types of private therapies and OT and speech and all these other things. And so it's just like, it's exhausting just thinking about it all. Okay. So let me ask you this. You said sometimes these kids have trouble with controlling their bodies. That was part of it. And so let's just make a quick segue here to American Sign Language, because that's what this interview is about today, right? Absolutely. You need to be able to control your body to do American Sign Language. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Learn with Adrian. So Adrian is a whiz at American Sign Language, and she has a really awesome online platform where she teaches. Uh, she teaches sign language to clinicians and other speech therapists. She is a speech language pathologist herself, and she has a lot of parents who are enrolled in her online course. So this interview, we talked a lot about sign language and how you can incorporate into your practice um, some of the misconceptions about sign language. We had a really engaging and interesting conversation all around sign language. So I, I have some thoughts about sign language and I wonder, you know, I, I haven't listened to the interview yet. I'm going to be, I'm a, I'm a fan just like everyone else of our podcast. I'm going to be listening to the, to the show just like everybody else. But here's my question with the, something I've been thinking about with American Sign Language in relation to augmentative communication. So my wife works in a high school. Uh, she's a special ed dean. And one of the classes that they have at the high school level is American Sign Language. It's, uh, it, it, they can, you can take it instead of German and take instead of Spanish, you can take American Sign Language. It's got me thinking because so often I, I think people use the analogy, and I know I use the analogy that teaching a communication device is often like teaching a foreign language. Like it takes that long. It's, it, you need to be immersed in it. And we're the ones who provide the immersion. What do we think about the idea that maybe in the future you could have an augmentative communication class at the high school level? Like maybe you're in the Prolo Quo class, maybe you're in the Lamp Words for Life class, maybe you're in the uh, Snap Plus Core First class or whatever, where you're actually learning the language of AAC. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think that's awesome. Um, of course, like two a get two AAC you know enthusiasts together, and we're like, yes, that sounds like a great course. Um, so, would this be something that all kids would be able to participate in, or would it be focused on just kids using AAC, or who who would be? No, I think it would be something. So now we're in the realm of of fantasy and and um, potential here. But how come American Sign Language is a class? right? Like how did that all happen? And so why yeah. couldn't it be that this could be a class? Again, not for just students who are using augmented communication devices, but for all the others that are be communication partners for people who are using communication devices. You know, you could learn all the principles that we've been talking about and you could learn maybe one or two specific systems. Yeah. And think about all the communication opportunities that would be afforded if you know, typical peers were able to learn these systems. And I think it's something that kids would be really motivated by, right? Like all kids like technology. Um, so I think that that's motivating in and of itself. And you have to figure if you are, you know, a 13 year old, typically developing, we'll say for lack of better words, and you're in school and you see 
peer who's using a device to talk. Um, I think that there's automatically barriers that come up. Um, you know, how would I communicate with you know, this person using a device. Um, and so I just think that if we, we teach and we educate kids on not only the systems, but how to use them and how to support communication partners, think about all the potential that that has. Um, you know, we talk a lot about fostering community on this podcast and it's something that, you know, Chris, you and I are both very passionate about. Um, and it's just what better way to do that than to teach communication partners for peers, yeah, if we do it for ASL, why don't we do it for other modalities? Exactly. Hey, Rachel, before we go into that interview, how are we doing on that challenge? Okay, guys, we have 72 reviews. I'm really excited. Every time we have a new episode, a few of you guys come and leave us a review. So if you haven't already, please go onto iTunes and give us a review. We're trying to get to 100 reviews by the end of the year. Um, I love this new one we just got. Uh, I'm going to read it. It's from Julie. She says, talking with tech features some of the best topics in the field of AAC as an AAC SLP in the Boston area. It's great to hear different perspectives from different SLPs and professionals from various areas all over the country. They also host some of the best experts in the field. You'll have a hard time picking the episode that you want to start with because they're all so good. I'm so happy right now. I'm, you can, I wish you guys could see us. We're, we're smiling from ear to ear. <laughs> that is so great. I'm, I think we're going to do it. I, you, know, you know that I was initially skeptical, but now getting close to the end of the year, but at 72, that's like only like, I don't know, 20 some reviews left. We could totally do it. Awesome. So please check out the Facebook group, go leave us a review on iTunes and please subscribe to the podcast. The, the podcast is free. So if you haven't done that, you don't have to choose which interview to start with. You can hit subscribe and just listen to all of them. Exactly. So before we head into the interview, here's a quick message from Exceptional Ed. for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Adrienne. Uh, Adrienne is doing amazing work in the sign language world, and she has a website called Learn With Adrienne. And I'm just so excited to have her here talking with us today. Welcome, Adrienne. Thank you. It's great to connect. Yeah, I'm so excited. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into sign language, and all the amazing work that you're doing. Yeah, so I'm a pediatric SLP, and my husband and I live in Kentucky. And I always like when people share their personality types. So on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFP. And on the Enneagram, I'm a nine wing one. I've just been like, I love how they put language around stuff that you just live with your whole life. And you're like, oh, that is me. Like, I get it now. <laughs> so, <laughs> I <do. laughs> so um, I started my career as an SLP working at the School for the Blind in Kentucky. And I remember adapting the AAC devices to be both tactile and auditory, which was an interesting creative challenge for me because I wanted to keep the devices streamlined and not super bulky, but also have the tactile element that can help the kids really express themselves and find where the buttons were and the switches and things like that. So I was excited to transition into early intervention in 2014 because I love the toddler age range and I love working with families of children to educate them about speech and language strategies and sign language and how they can use those in their daily life and not just like, okay, let's sit down. It's time for speech time, but just really infuse it into everything that they're already doing throughout the day. But in 2015, I started to feel like there was a huge gap in education for parents of toddlers. I found myself teaching family after family and home visit after home visit, the same strategies that I just shared an hour before at this other house. And I was like, there's got to be an easier way. I wish I could clone myself and just play a recording to them. And I realized, well, that's what videos do. That's kind of like a clone of yourself. You can record yourself at a moment of time, share a bunch of ideas, and then share that link. And so um, sometimes I would work 
a lot of times with the moms of my clients and they'd say, Oh, Adrian, this is such a helpful tip. I wish my husband was here to listen to this too, because, um, it's hard for me to explain it the same way that you do. And I feel like I forget things or I leave things out. And so I started going home after my sessions and recording short lessons for the families that I worked with so they could remember the strategies or the signs that I taught them that day for sign language. And then I started, when I onboarded new clients, I was like, Oh, I have this whole playlist of videos. I'll share this with them before we even get started working on sessions because we, in our state, we have to wait a certain amount of days to start seeing them after we get assigned to their case. And so I was like, perfect. They can have something to do while they're waiting for our first visit. And so I posted the videos on YouTube and other people started finding and watching my trainings and sharing them with their friends and other SLPs, which was surprising to me. But the first video that I shared was for parents and it was called how to get toddlers to sit and read with you tips from a speech therapist. And that was something that was a struggle for some families. And they were like, I just really want to read to them. I know it's so important. How do you keep them engaged? Like they just don't have a long attention span. And so I was able to educate them on toddlers attention spans are short, but here's some things that you can do to keep them interested. So the video was almost 20 minutes long and it's gotten 200,000 views and over 3000 shares. So I looked at the analytics and I realized, wow, people are tuning in from all over the world to learn from me. And I realized that I could help way more families at one time by making videos that both parents and SLPs can watch anywhere in the world. One of my sign language students, she is also a speech therapist, but she's the only speech therapist in her country. And she's like, I have a huge waiting list. I'm not able to see all the kids who need my services. And their parents are just like needing strategies and advice and things. And so I'm sharing resources with them, but I'm only one person. And so thinking about people who are in countries where it's hard to access early intervention or there's a stigma around it um, has been helpful because people can watch videos and same with your podcast. I'm sure like people can listen wherever they are. And it's so helpful to just spread information and resources to help people. Absolutely. And that was kind of the impetus that helped me start doing video content was it's the same thing. I was saying the same things over and over again. And I was just like, you know, I need to make this more efficient. Um, Realizing that there's lots of kids that are on wait lists for speech therapy. Um, I had a similar experience. I went abroad um, in Cambodia actually, and they're just bringing speech therapy to Cambodia. Um, They don't have speech therapy there. So there's a severe lack of resources and such a huge need. And I was like, okay, like I can do something about this. Um, And so I have people in similar situations who are just like, thank you so much. Like, you know, I really, I really benefit from all these videos and all the resources that you share. And so it's really cool to see what an impact, simple video that we're now able to just do so easily, right? We just open our laptop or click on our phone and we're able to share information and disseminate it. And, um, I just, I love all of your, your YouTube videos, Adrian, they are so helpful and so practical. Um, I'm constantly referring parents to your, your website. And, um, I really think that you do a great job of creating content that's very bite-sized and easy to digest. Um, a lot of times, you know, you look and you do a quick Google search, or you're trying to find something and you might be able to find a webinar, you know, with PowerPoint point slides, but it's just not engaging. Right. And like now our attention spans are, you know, it's like, I'm a gnat. I'm like constantly from like one thing to the next. Like I can't stay still like those kids who are having a hard time reading those toddlers. Um, but it's just, it's just so refreshing to see your, your short clips that are really, really helpful. Um, so I just would really encourage all of our listeners to take a look at what Adrian's doing online because she's doing amazing things and they're so helpful for families, especially if you're working with early intervention kids. Mm, Thank you. And I love making things visual on videos so that you can emphasize different points and things like that. Because um, something I realized is that people don't just watch a video or listen to a podcast once. Sometimes they'll watch it again and again, or they'll watch it once with their two-year-old and then they have a baby. And then two years later, they're like, what was that that she mentioned that I used to do? And then they can watch it again. And so Yeah, it's so helpful to just be able to have access to tons of information. I learned so much from YouTube how to like fix plumbing and like how to basically do anything I need to do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Oh, so let's talk a little bit about sign language. Um, you know, obviously we have a podcast dedicated to AAC and sign language is a part of augmented communication, right? So I would love to hear your thoughts um, being the, the sign language expert that you are. Um, how can we utilize sign language for early communicators? Um, there's so many different ways that you can incorporate it into daily life that it really helps to reduce frustration for kids because it gives kids a symbolic way to communicate before they're able to speak verbally. So it reduces stress for people on both sides, you know, the listener and the talker or the communicator and the receiver of communication, because now there's a way for your child to either point what they need or sign something that they need instead of crying and feeling so frustrated that they can't get their needs met. And so it reduces frustration for kids and it makes learning to talk easier and in some cases faster for kids. So um, there's been research that's been done and when adults use signs at the same time that they speak, so if they say the word ball and they're also signing ball, then kids experience the word in a multi-sensory way. It's like when we're in class and the teacher's lecturing and they also have a PowerPoint. Like we can see the visual, we can hear the words and connect those concepts together in a visual way. Yeah, we're constantly, you know, talking about how important it is to have visual supports, um, especially for these kids who have a really hard time sometimes with auditory processing and that auditory channel is not strong. And so being able to supplement with those visual supports are so, it's so important. Exactly. And then if the child themselves is able to do the signs, then they also get that tactile feedback too. So they're able to do the signs, gross motor, fine motor skills are incorporated and they can really make that word feel concrete and symbolic instead of just abstract and like these words floating around in your atmosphere, like you can make it concrete and tangible. Absolutely. So I also want to touch on some of the myths, right? So we in the AAC world know all about those myths that, you know, pictures or sign language, these will all stunt a child's speech development. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. I already, I already think I know what they are, but just for our, our dear listeners. Yes, let me stretch and just get ready to answer this one because <laughs> it's such a frequently perpetuated myth that, oh, you're teaching your child to sign, they're never going to talk because they're only going to sign. Let's just bust that myth once and for all right here because um, signing will not make your child lazy. It's actually the opposite of what research says. I was so passionate about this when I learned uh, about this topic in grad school that I wrote my whole thesis on it and I called it to sign or not to sign because um, it's such a hot topic. But the research studies reveal a resounding conclusion that signing does not hinder verbal development. And to the contrary, the studies prove that gesturing facilitates verbal skill acquisition. So in other words, sign language helps children when they're learning to speak. And then another study shows that signs can help parents decode their baby's verbal sounds when they do start talking. So you know, when their pronunciation is unclear, when they're making approximations, signs can help parents understand what their child wants when they're not able to understand verbally. Like, what did you say? What are they wanting? And then they can sign it to clarify their message. So that really gives the child confidence. It gives the parents a connection point with their child. They're like, oh, that's what they want. And they can really meet the needs of their child as they're learning to talk. And it just kind of gives a buffer. And that reinforcement is so huge. These, mm -hmm. these kids who, you know, are having a really hard time with speech for whatever reason, their approximations are coming out and, you know, they're constantly getting negative feedback and not purposely, right? But it's like, they're not being understood. So they keep trying and trying and we keep saying, huh, what? Say it again. Not sure. You know, so if we're able to alleviate that at some level, it's so important to be able to give kids positive feedback, right? And if we're understanding them, you know, of course, we're going to be able to give that to them. So I think that's such an important piece to all exactly, of this. Exactly. Exactly. And then once children do learn to talk, if they're able to speak verbally, then their voice will naturally replace their signs because talking is way quicker than signing. And as humans, we love to do the shortcut. Um, so if they're able to speak, they will speak. Trust us. Like it's way faster than signing. And so if they have the ability to learn to speak, then they're going to, that's a shortcut. <laughs> 
our listeners can't see me right now, but I'm just nodding so vigorously um, because I could not agree more. I say that all the time. Mm-hmm. Everybody does what is easiest. Whatever comes easiest to them, they will do. So mm-hmm. if speaking, and sometimes it, it tips the, the scale, right? Sometimes, you know, signing or pictures or an AAC device is easier. And then, yeah. you know, slowly but surely for some words or, you know, across the board, speaking becomes easier. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I just... I hate hearing, oh, he will get lazy and only use sign or only, you know, use AAC or whatever it is. First of all, like that's a whole nother conversation. I I can't even go there. Um, But it's just, it's not true at all. Right. And it breaks my heart to hear that myth continue on and on because I remember working with a toddler a couple years ago and she had started signing with her child. She had learned some signs. She was excited. And she told her, she mentioned it to her pediatrician and she said, oh, stop signing because he he won't talk if he's only seeing sign language. And that's totally incorrect advice. Sign language gives kids language well before they're able to talk verbally. And language is power. Like we need language to learn, to read, to speak, do math, English, science, learn new skills any new skill, you need language for that. Um, and so withholding language from kids is never okay to do. It's never the answer, right? No. It's never the right answer, like no. not giving kids language. Um, yeah. We can all agree on that. <laughs> exactly. And I remember learning from Laura Mize. She's another pediatric speech language pathologist. And she um, she wrote this great article about, article about sign language. And she said, we don't stop teaching our kids to wave bye-bye because we're afraid that they're never going to say bye-bye out loud. Like, do we do that? No. Like, don't wave. You're not going to say bye-bye. You're not going to learn how to say that if you wave. And the same thing is true. Like, we don't tell babies not to crawl. Like, stop crawling because you're never going to walk. Like, it's a step towards walking. It's a step towards talking. So. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, sign language and what kinds of signs we could be teaching. Uh, We talk a lot about fringe versus core vocabulary on this podcast. And I'm just curious from you, um, you know, what are the indicators? Do you start with, you know, very concrete fringe words when you're um, teaching kids sign? Do you use core words because they're more generalizable? I would love your insight. Yeah, well, for the past couple of years, I've been working with a client who is deaf and he, some of the first words that he was picking up on were those power words like stop and um, also nouns because the nouns like ball and um, just different like dog and cat, they look very similar to what they're trying to portray. And so the connection is easier to make than like please and thank you. Those are so abstract. And so I would never start with like manners or words that are not functional for kids. So I always think about the power words. I remember with this um, client, we, he had this toy that would spin and it was a bunch of different colors and we would spin it. And then I would say, stop. And I would stop it with my hand and do the sign. And then he would giggle and laugh and we did that over and over. And then every time we would stop, you know, the music would stop, the toy would stop spinning. And so he started to learn, okay, when she does that sign, I can look to her and I know it's going to stop. So he paired that cause and effect of um, the motion with the sign. And then he started to sign that very early on. And it was motivating to him because it was a fun thing that he was already doing. He already liked that toy. I wasn't coming in and telling him to say, stop, just arbitrarily. Like it was something that he was already interested in. So I would focus on what is it that your student or child is really into and think of some power words like stop, mine, go, no, yes. Those type of words to start with. I I love that. And, um, you know, I frequently am using those signs. I mean, I don't know as much sign language as you, that's for sure, but I'm going to take your course and then I'll, I'll be more versed. Um, (laughs) but I definitely see a value. Um, it takes me back actually to when I was working in preschools and this was when I was living in Philadelphia. And first of all, very noisy environments, very chaotic. Um, those preschool classrooms were kind of wild and I was constantly using signs because I just felt like I needed to pair a visual and, you know, 
sometimes you don't have that picture, right? Or you don't have that device or you don't have any communication board available. So, you know, I always have my hands. Uh, Sometimes not if my hands are full, but um, which they were oftentimes in the preschool, but Mm -hmm. it's so useful to just like carry it. And sometimes kids respond so quickly to sign language. Um, you know, and, and so I think that there's definitely a place for it. Um, Mm -hmm. my next question is, is sign language a long-term strategy for kids? Is it a stepping stone? Cause you know, to be honest in my practice, I've kind of used it as a stepping stone. Um, and it sounds like you work a lot with like those early intervention kids. And so that's kind of exactly what it is. At what point do you, you know, kind of say, well, maybe we need to expand more long-term solution or like a high tech speech generating device. Like, what's your your thought process with that? Yeah, I think that it can always be layered into any communication system that a child is using. So I don't think you necessarily need to like stop and transition out of sign language ever. Just like I talk with my hands all the time to tell a story. So I think that if I'm going to describe to someone like, hey, the bathroom is down the hall to the left, like, I'm going to point with my finger instead of saying, okay, when you're facing this wall, look to your left and then walk down, you know, just, you know, faster. And so I think that, um, there's never a time that I would recommend, okay, we're done with sign language. Let's close that chapter, move on to something new. I would just say to carry that on into whatever strategy you think would be best for the child. And I think that, I don't know if there's ever like a concrete way to start something new and to know, okay, now it's time we need to introduce this other thing or a device or something low tech. I think that adding it in with the signs that they already know might be a helpful way to just transition and add something along with the signs. And if they really are motivated by the signs, then you can kind of pair that with it. So to that point, Adrian, I, I completely agree. And I feel like sometimes it's just easier to use a sign or a gesture. Mm-hmm. And I think no is a classic example that I'm constantly trying to teach kids how to shake their head no, because mm-hmm. everybody understands that. It's a universally right. understood gesture. Um, right. Same thing with pointing. Um, so I really think that we need to be careful because sometimes we get um, you know, in one line of thinking, right? Like I do AAC, so I need to think, use your device. Uh, but I really think accepting multimodality communication is so important for these kids, you know, because we know there's so many different ways to communicate. And I think that, you know, gestures and sign language is just that. A lot of times I have families that are kind of struggling because they're kind of in between. They like started with sign language and they had some success. And, you know, now they're like, but we kind of, you know, grandma doesn't understand the sign language. And there's kind of, there is that, that breakdown, right? Somebody, the communication partner has to understand um, and know how to use signs. So it's kind of, that's a a barrier in some ways for kind of autonomous universal communication. Um, So it's, it's, it's interesting to hear your kind of point of view. Cause I, I agree. We don't kind of now, now thinking through it, I'm like, we don't kind of just stop and say, Oh, now we're going to do this. Right. We kind of support um, what the child keeps doing. And a lot of times I have kids that it's easier to just sign more um, or all done instead of finding it on their device. And then that's a perfect opportunity for me to model on their device. So what I frequently will tell families is if your child is using the sign, great. You don't need to make them say it again on their device. Um, Just model it. It's a perfect opportunity to be like, yeah, you said you want more and model more. Um, So I think that there's ways that we can kind of use both of these tools um, to help kids communicate in, you know, multimodality ways. Right. And also realizing that depending on the environment that they're in, if it's noisy or if it's quiet, like I communicate differently with my hands. If I'm at, you know, at home talking with my husband, like I don't need to explain as much or gesture, but if I'm out in the, we're at a restaurant and it's super loud. Like sometimes I tell stories with my hands a little bit more because it's louder. My voice is pretty quiet. And so it's easier for me to emphasize certain things by using my hands. So also being aware that kids might just because working one-on-one with you in a speech session, they might gravitate towards one thing in that that controlled environment. It's going to be different when they're with their peers or if they're in their classroom, it's a little bit louder they're out at recess and there's a lot visually going on, they're going to probably switch modes to compensate for some of the external distractions that might be around in their environment. Absolutely. And actually there's a lot of um, personal accounts of 
adult AAC users saying with autism, saying for whatever reason, sometimes I just can't talk. And so they're part-time users, right? So they use their, their communication system sometimes, um, but sometimes they're able to talk. Um, and so I just love thinking about that because it just shows that for whatever reason, different environments, different communication partners, they can all influence our communication and how it comes out and what modality we find works best for us. Um, and so I really do think that's an important lesson for why we teach multimodality communication. We don't know what's going to stick and we don't know what's going to be the most effective. And a lot of times it's not just one answer, right? It's a lot of different things. Um, and so I just love kind of that thought process going into it because um, that way you're not limiting a child in a lot of ways. Right. Introducing them to all kinds of different modalities is going to be helpful because like we said earlier, we take the shortcut. So whatever the shortcut is for them, you know, if signing is a lot easier for them than speaking, then they're going to sign. If speaking is easier than signing, they're going to speak. If pointing to their device is easier than signing, they're going to do that. And um, realizing that it could change across environments or with a certain communication partner, they might kind of switch gears when they're talking to their mom who understands all their signs versus grandma who doesn't know signs. And so using the device. So like also realizing that we can teach our students how to switch contexts and advocate for themselves in different situations where they need to like, it's okay to use different methods with different people. Like that's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's something that is really important to teach as a skill. Um, you know, repairing a communication breakdown. I'm mm -hmm. constantly like being really exaggerated with my facial expressions. Like, huh? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't understand that. What? Mm -hmm. um, you know, to teach kids that that's what happens when there's a breakdown, right? Like I didn't understand. Um, Cause a lot of times kids kids will keep whatever modality they're using. If they're using a the device, they'll keep hitting something and maybe the volume's not up high enough and I can't hear it. Um, or they're either using approximation and I'm trying to teach them to repair on their device. Um, you know, or maybe, you know, in a sign language context, somebody doesn't understand sign or I don't know that sign. Um, so how can we repair that breakdown? Um, I think is really important skill to be teaching the kids. Yeah, that we work with. Definitely. And also realizing that um, you can create a sign if you need to use it for a certain situation. Like, for example, if there's a specific character in a book and you're reading that book, then you can maybe use the initial of the first letter of that character to pair with that so that they can realize, oh, I can be flexible with this. And sometimes signs are very visual where even if someone didn't know the sign for it, they know, oh, they need to go to the bathroom. Like, it's pretty obvious, you know, or, oh, they're thirsty because they're making that motion like they're drinking out of a cup. And so, um, so yeah, I think that just all connects it together to where, so it's, it's kind of like charades in a way where even if, even if they don't understand the technical sign, then there's other ways that you can visually explain it with your hands or point. Sometimes you can point just as easily as trying to show a specific sign. Um, so being flexible and realizing that even though there are specific signs for specific words, you can be creative with it depending on your communication partner and what they, what they know or what they don't know or things like that. And I love that you touched on that because that was a question I had was what are we, what do we do when there's kind of approximations of signs? Cause a lot of times the kids that I work with, you know, I'll come in and, and the mom will be like, Oh, well that, that's how he says drink. <laughs> or that's how he says more. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, you know, which at some level is good, right? That he's communicating at some level um, and I'll take it. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy you touched on that because I think a lot of times, even myself, I kind of get this tunnel vision about, okay, well, that's not the sign for more. Like, how is everybody going to understand that? Um, so thinking kind of more outside the box and realizing that, you know, will that transfer to independent communication with an unknown partner? No, but it's really effective for the communication partners that the child is surrounded by. Um, you know, so it's kind of balancing what we want as far as, you know, yes, we want independent autonomous communicators, but you know, it's like a stepping stone, like you said. Um, and, and the most important thing, right. Is that we have kids talking right story like we need them yeah. communicating i shouldn't have said talking i should have said communication we have kids we have kids communicating uh because at the end of the day it's just that's the most important thing no matter what modality right exactly and something that you could think about doing is if 
one student has different signs that they are approximating and you're like, that does not look anything like the sign and how would anyone know? Then you could, um, you know, ask the parents to take pictures of that sign or you could take them and then create like a key where it just has all of the approximations. If they're signing most of the words right and then there's a couple that are just a little bit different. Stragglers. Like, no one's going to know what that means. Yeah, straggler. Um, <laughs> and, um, you can make a key and then work with the child about, you know, advocating for themselves and pulling it out. If there is a communication breakdown and someone isn't understanding them, then maybe it's because the sign is on their key and the unfamiliar listener could look at that and be like, oh, you're talking about water. Now I understand. And so teaching them ways that are also visual with a picture or a written list or a key would be helpful. Yeah, I actually had a client once. Um, she made a bunch of videos. So she was just like, listen, I know nobody's going to understand these signs. Um, so anytime there was a new team member that joined, she would just send the link um, to, it was just like a short video of her doing all the signs that, you know, the approximations of signs. So I thought that was a really clever way to, you know, showcase like, you know, here, don't miss these. Because a lot of times, like we miss those. We miss approximations of signs because we don't know. And I'm even like, I feel like I'm super in tune, right? I'm like looking for any type of communication, but sometimes yeah. it's, you know, it, it's not recognizable unless somebody shows you like, oh, that's like how he says, you know, more or whatever. Exactly. Um, it's helpful if they sign it the same way every time. Like, yes. I remember when my brother was little, um, instead of the word milk, when he was first learning to talk, he called it Erla, which is, I feel like more complicated than milk, but we all knew what Erla was. And so, yeah. you know, grandma was over um my brother would be like Erla Erla and she'd be like what's that and so we'd all tell her and it's the same kind of thing with signs like once you know you know and yeah still talking about that 20 years later like yeah oh, that's that's, that's really interesting the vocalic R does not seem easier than uh no. Like. No, <laughs> okay <laughs> that's now she's funny. a dentist so I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Okay, well, let's transition a little bit. I want to talk about autism uh, because I work a lot of, with a lot of kids with autism. And my experience with autism is that kids either totally get sign language and they like hit the ground running or they overgeneralize all of their signs. And there, it doesn't feel like there's true comprehension that mm -hmm. this specific sign stands for this specific word. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what your experience has been with kids with autism um, and that exact thing. I feel like I work with a lot of kids. Um, some of them, they're great. Um, and it really like transforms their communication. Other kids I work with, it's like, you know, they'll sign more and they won't get it. And then they'll sign all done and they won't get it. And they'll kind of go rapid fire through all of the signs that they know. Um, so I just love to hear your thoughts, man. It's so complex because you're not sure sometimes is this a motor planning thing for them? Like, are they understanding me fully when I'm signing to them? Maybe they are, and they're just not able to expressively sign it back to you mm -hmm. or they're trying to sign it. And they're just like going through all the lists of signs they've seen you do, but they know. So it's, it's hard to really sift through what are they understanding versus what are they able to express and it's the same way with verbal communication too, like where it's, it's hard to tell sometimes. And so I think assuming that they understand everything that you're signing is a good place to start. Just assume that they can understand it. Keep repeating signs. And I think um, with sign language, repetition is really important and making sure that you incorporate the signs into th things that they already like doing and that they connect with already is what I've found that helps the most. And kind of going back to those power words, if it's not functional, then sometimes they might not see the need for it. <laughs> like um, if it's not something that helps them get what they want or need, then it's going to be sometimes hard for them to connect it with like, oh, this is crucial that I do this with my hands too. But also sometimes like backing up a step and doing more simple imitation of physical gestures like clapping. Um, so like you clap and then they clap or something that's more like clapping you can hear and feel and see. So that might be more 
helpful as having that auditory component than just doing a sign that are sometimes silent. Also, something that I've noticed is that um, sometimes when signs don't connect, when your hands don't touch, when you're doing a specific sign, sometimes that's harder for kids because it's like my hands are just, especially with proprioception, my hands are just floating around. I'm not sure what to do with them, but signs like more bring the hands to midline or mama brings your thumb to your chin. And so if you're noticing that they're having trouble signing things, then think about, okay, is this sign connected to their body somehow mm-hmm. to where they get that input where they're feeling their hands together or feeling their hand on their chin or on their face or on their heart. So thinking, um, going through the signs that you've been using and focusing on those ones first might set your student up for more success because they might be able to really have that tactile input. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I also just encourage families. Sometimes these more abstract language concepts like go and stop and all these really high frequency, highly generalizable ones, the ones that we love using, right? Cause we can use them yeah. across lots of different routines and environments and, and activities. Um, they just take some time to learn. So I loved what you said about repetition and I, you know, encourage families to do the same thing is listen, we need to keep pairing it with meaningful experiences, um, you know, and eventually they will learn Um, starting with the presumption that they understand and they can understand. Uh, We just need to keep on keeping on. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, Oftentimes it doesn't happen overnight. And so, you know, we just need to keep resting on the belief that it will happen and, you know, a child will understand. Right. And that even if you don't see the fruit of their understanding, like you don't see that they're understanding or they're not able to show you just yet, like even if you still are pairing signs with words, that still is helping them. Just like a PowerPoint presentation helps when you're in a lecture, even if the presenter is like, oh, these people aren't even paying attention. Like we're, we're watching and we're listening and we're learning. So um, assuming that they're paying attention instead of thinking, oh, just because I'm not seeing a reaction or um, they're not able to show me that they understand then. Um, yeah. Assuming that they understand is. Yeah. I think that's such a great analogy. I just was speaking at a autism conference in LA and it was funny because after I was done, you know, it, you're up on stage and there's like bright, shiny lights and it just, it's hard because you don't get that feedback, right? Like I'm used to talking with, you know, you and I, I can like see that you're agreeing with me. You're nodding your head. There's all these kind of subtle feedback that you get, you know? And I thought like, Oh, like, I don't know if that went well, like were people listening? And then of course I got like great feedback and people came up and were like, that was so engaging. That was so, you know, entertaining. And you know, you were so funny and all these things. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, so it just goes to show that just because we're not getting a reaction, um, seemingly doesn't mean that people aren't absorbing the information. And, um, I think it's it's so relevant to just talking about how, you know, when people are sitting and I'm watching, you know, somebody present, I'm not constantly just staring at them all the time, right? Yeah, um, you're not laughing out my, loud at their jokes. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, you know, checking my phone. I'm like writing some notes. I'm like daydreaming for a hot second. And then I kind of come back in, but, you know, I'm getting a lot of, I'm absorbing a lot of the information that they're giving. And I think that if the same is, is true with autism, um, just because a child's not looking at you or looking at a device does not mean they're not attending and they're not absorbing that information. So it's yeah. really important to keep giving that input. Yeah. And also switching our mindset, like even if they're not looking, that might be helping them attend better mm-hmm. because they're not looking and trying to take in that visual stimulation. And so like they might, that might be actually helping them learn more than you think it is because they're able to focus better. Like I remember, you know, all growing up in school, I would doodle and that really helped me focus. And so Um, If my teachers were to look and be like, oh, Adrienne's doodling, she's distracted, she's not learning anything, they would have been wrong because I was still able to learn and actually focus better when I had something to do with my hands. I love, love, love it. Well, listen, Adrienne, thank you so much for coming on. I would love for people to to figure out where to find you. So I want to talk a little bit about your course um, because it's fantastic and it's wildly successful. Um, so just like tell us a little bit about the course, when you developed it and how people can, can gain access to it if they want to learn sign language. 
Sure. Um, so my class is called Sign Language in 30 Days, and it's an online class so you can learn from wherever you live. And SLPs can earn up to five hours of CEUs for ASHA all online. So you can just log in uh, once a day and watch a lesson. The lessons range from five to 15 minutes each day for 30 days. And by the end of 30 days, you'll know 300 of the most commonly used signs. So it's self-paced though. So you have lifetime access to the class. So I have had students, one student this month actually finished in 25 days because she was really ambitious and eager. And then I've had students who have um, set a goal to finish in two months. And so they've taken a lesson every other day so they could review in the days in between. So um, it's a wonderful resource for SLPs. And I've heard time and time again from SLPs who've taken it that they're so thankful they have lifetime access because they had a student one year who used a lot of signs and then the, a student the next year who was really interested in transportation and like trucks and cars. And so they would go back to the transportation lesson. They didn't need to retake the whole class, but they had that resource, you know, kind of like a, almost a dictionary of sign language words that they could go back and learn on their computer or tablet or smartphone. So yeah. I, I just love that you have an online course. So when I first got out of grad school, I was like, I need to learn sign language. And so what did I do? I bought a baby signs book. And I was like, you know, it's really hard to like learn sign language through a book. Um, I really had a hard time. It was like, and it has like all of those arrows. That's like, Oh, your finger goes up this way. Um, so it was like, I honestly felt like it was like a puzzle every time I sat down with my book. I wish you had your course way back then. Um, it would have been a lot easier for me. And it's so fun to be able to share the signs through video because it is so different than it printed out on a piece of paper and looking at the arrows, trying to figure it out. And I like in my video lessons, I share different ways to remember the signs. So like the sign for cookie, I'm showing it to you, but I guess podcast listeners won't see, but it's one hand is flat and the other hand is almost like you're picking up a cookie or holding onto a cookie cutter and then moving it around. And so in my lessons, I share all the strategies that I use to remember the signs because some of them look like what they describe and some of them don't. And so I've come up with ways for each sign to remember for your long-term memory. <laughs> That's amazing. So we'll definitely link in the show notes to Adrian's course because I think it's fantastic. And I'm actually really excited to take it. Throwing that baby signs book out the out the window. Yeah. Um, I'm upgrading. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I have a gift for your podcast listeners. Um, they can try out the class for free. They can take the first lesson at my website, learnwithadrian.com. So um, you can see if you like my teaching style and um, take the first lesson and learn some signs. Get started absolutely. today. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really great way. Um, it's a really great thing to have in, in your toolkit, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of the families that I work with who I'm doing AAC with, you know, they're doing a lot of sign language and they're doing a lot of multimodality communicating. And so I just think it's an easy way for, for clinicians to get some CEU hours and learn a skill. I, I'll never forget, I once was uh, backpacking through Europe um, and I was backpacking with a good friend who's also a speech therapist and she knows a lot of sign language and she taught me the whole alphabet. And so the entire trip, I was just like signing things. We were kind of like covertly like talking to, to each other through, you know, spelling, like finger spelling. Yeah. Of course I've lost it all because I haven't practiced it, but it was super fun. And, yeah. and your hands are always with you. If you're in the swimming pool or if you're on one side of a window and your friend's on the other side and you can't hear each other, like your hands are always there. You don't have to pull something out and write it down. And oh yeah. We were like telling each other like sneaky messages about people like, you know, on, on the train and things like that. So, <laughs> that so fun. Yeah, well, it was the great. It's the very first lesson that I teach. So that's that first that free gift that I have. So. Perfect. It'll be yeah. a perfect for refresher course for me. Yeah, <laughs> so we always uh, ask the same thing uh, to all the, the people we have on for interviews. If you had a billboard that every SLP saw, what would your billboard say? Okay. So I would probably say invest in your own knowledge and sharpen your skills before buying another therapy material. When I first started out, I thought, oh, in grad school, we had a whole materials room and it was just stocked from floor to ceiling with all these materials, anything that you could ever need. And so I thought when I graduate, I'll probably need to have a materials room like for to be a legit therapist. I don't know why I thought that, but so I remember buying a bunch of different toys and things like that for the school for the blind and then for my early intervention sessions. And then I realized, wait a minute, <laughs> it's better if I spend my time 
and money investing in my own knowledge so I can use whatever is around me <laughs> to do therapy instead of like relying on the materials all the time that might not be with me when I'm sitting in front of a student. So I think investing in your own knowledge is a billboard. I completely agree. And I think it's, it's a really great test of a, a good clinician is to be able to walk into any environment with any room, with any resources and mm -hmm. figure out how can I make a communication opportunity out of this. Um, and I think that it reminds us that we need to really dive into the child's world and figure out what are they interested in? What are they playing with in this moment? How can I use that to my advantage? Um, you know, of course, kids love a big bag of therapy toys, um, yeah. you know, and I love going into a room that has tons of resources at my disposal. But yeah. I do think it's important to be able to utilize all the, the resources that a child has in their home or a, a in a classroom, you know, cause we know from a generalizing standpoint that that's way more effective. And that's what I share on my YouTube channel too. Like I have a whole video just using like a roll of tape for um, an early intervention speech therapy session. And so um, I show all the different ways that you could use tape follow directions and like to do all kinds of questions and language stuff. And I don't think I've shown, showed you this yet, but I made a blueprint recently that helps parents with that. So in the middle, you just put whatever thing that your child is looking at. So for me, I put tissue, just like a Kleenex. Yeah. And then around it, there's four quadrants where it's like how to surround it with words, how to look at it with fresh eyes, simple phrases, and then pondering out loud. So you can just fill in everything and then you can give this to like the parent. And so this is something I've made recently, but it's been really helpful for me to wrap my head around. And it's something that I'll be sharing on my website too soon. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited for that because I feel like I would definitely use it. And, and one of the, the, the great things about your YouTube channel is it's not only good for parents, right? I send it to parents because I'm like, she's great. She has lots of great ideas, but I, I benefit from all of your, your content and I get ideas, um, you know, about how to use certain materials and, and things like that in an engaging way. So I just, I really love what you're doing and I would really encourage all of our listeners to go check out Learn with Adrian. Um, she's, she's fantastic. And I'm just so, so happy that you came and, and talked with us today. Thanks for having me, Rachel. It's been so fun. Yeah. So uh, we'll link to all of uh, Adrian's contacts in the show notes. Um, for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel. Thank you guys so much for listening and we will talk to you next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.